Hello and welcome to the Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I'm your host and I'm very excited to be joined as usual by my partner in crime and co-host, the Fulham Flyer, the Shawangunk Express. He is the Brittany Peterson. It's by my Brittany Murphy. Phil Vondra, welcome back to the Pain Cave. All right. It's good to be here. It's a special night. Two very, very special guests on. Super excited. Yeah, we're returning back to the site of possibly your favorite event in the world, the Vol State 500. We're welcoming in this year's two, two, two of the more impressive performances that we've seen on U.S. soil this year, I think. Coming back for the second time is our new Vol State 500 champ, and we're going to have him on to talk about this just unbelievable performance that he put up this year. Welcome back to the Pain Cave, Bob Hearn. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Phil. Bob, thanks for coming on. It's good to have you back. And also joining us, another Southern or Northern California, sorry, Northern California native who is returning as now the two-time women's unsupported course record holder at Vol State. She runs for Garden of Life. Uh, We are super psyched to welcome in Bev Abs. Bev, welcome back or welcome into the Pink Cave. Hey, thank you. It's good to be here. It's really great to have you. It's great to have you both. I'm really excited to get into your recent races at Vol State and everything that's been going on down in Tennessee. But before we do that, Phil, what are we drinking tonight? Me, I have uh, gone back to my roots. I'm drinking um, an other half beer out of Brooklyn, a Mosaic and Galaxy um, double IPA. My standard post-workout rehydration. Excellent. I am also going to go with a Mosaic hopped IPA. Uh, in honor of our West Coast guests, I went with a West Coast beer. I have a McKellar Subway Mosaic IPA. So, All right. Very nice. There we go. What are you guys drinking tonight? I've got a Barbera from a Napa vineyard called uh, Vianza. That looks delicious. Nice. Look at him swirl that like a pro. Yeah. yeah. And is that yeah, a Zalto you're drinking out of there? Are you particularly with your glassware or just the um, biggest glass you can find like me? It's a it's a Riedel um, cab Somalia. glass. But, Very yeah. nice. Bev, I like it. Bev, what do you have? I went with a, a kind of wimpy, low-alcohol IPA dogfish head. Oh, dogfish head. I know that. Going, yeah, yeah. Going Good. East Coast. Excellent. Drinking it out of a glass, like a real class act. I like to see it. <laughs> so, yeah, we're super excited to have you guys on. I'm, I'm sorry that this podcast got delayed. It was going to be a lot more topical before I got sick. I was out in, or in Silverton for Hard Rock a couple weeks ago or last week. And two weeks ago, almost now, and and came back with a really nasty cold uh, that developed into something really horrendous. So we had to postpone this. It was going to be a lot more topical, but we're really psyched to have you guys on. It's been a couple of weeks now. So how how are you guys doing? Just to to start at the end, how are you guys doing on recovery? How how are you feeling? Uh, two three weeks out from what was really a truly amazing effort for both of you. I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, my, my feet were trashed after the race, but not as bad as they were trashed last year. And just like last year, my muscles um, seem relatively unaffected. I took a week off and started ramping back up last week. This week should be a more typical running week. How about you, Beth? I'm coming back pretty fast as well. Um, my feet were pretty hammered after that one, worse, worse than I've had at any of the prior Tennessee runs. Um, largely because of the wet, constant wet that they were experiencing. Um, my big thing is not so much that I 
can't run. It's just that I really don't care right now. <laughs> so it's, you know, if I have any excuse to not run, I, I will jump on it. And I've been getting out on bikes a bit more and um, trying to get excited to run. And, you know, I did, I went out and did some intervals last night with a group uh, and those came back pretty fast. I was able to do like six minute pace. So I figure I'm, wow. I'm getting ready nice. to, to start getting serious. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, th- this has become kind of this race and, and for, for both of you guys and, and Laz's races uh, in general, I think have become uh, certainly something that both of you have now kind of attached yourselves to a little bit in the last few years. Um, Bev, let's start with you because uh, this this was a race that, if I remember correctly, your husband Alan had done a few times before you had uh, ever gotten into uh, either the last annual Vol State or uh, the Heart of the South, the Hots, which you've also done a few times. So tell us a little bit about. I, I mean, you, you you've you've been in this sport for decades now, but uh, it, as I said, it seems as though this is something that's kind of piqued your interest recently. I know you and and Alan were. We're also longtime Barkley competitors. So, so tell us about how you kind of started running hots and labs and, and what kind of brought you to this world. Um, it's sort of a, a long build up to this. Uh, Alan actually did it the first time in 2013. And at the time I had zero interest in running across a state on the road. I was much more interested in trail running and doing hundreds and things like that. He went back in 2018. I think that was his next. And I was supposed to be going back in 2018 with him, but I started to struggle with some knee issues late 2017 and had some, I had stem cell therapy. So I didn't want to go back and I didn't want to go and do 300 miles on fresh young cartilage so I deferred <laughs> and the two of us came or went to Vol State in 2019 and that it was a fun way to do it being with Alan and having somebody there to to enjoy the time with and it just kind of sucked me into back into the Tennessee vortex I, there's something about races over there that once you do one or two you you never get out again so, and then, you know, for 2020, when the whole entry with Vol State got messed up and, and Laz created HOTS, we thought, well, why don't we give this a try? And it was fantastic. It was so cool to see the different areas. Um, and then my thought was, I'm, I'm good with HOTS. I just want to keep doing that because it's going to be different every year. Right. Um, so I went back this year and was had a fabulous first two days and then on a like a six mile descent out of the mountains I tore my hamstring and the entire back of my leg bruised up and swelled and I I thought this is stupid I can't carry on like this so I dropped out and it ate at me the entire time and I came back to California and went to the doctor see what was wrong, got it treated as well as I could, and just started going through the motions to get back into Vol State because it killed me to have not finished that race. And then, so I went back, and the plan was to do it with Alan again, and it just didn't work out that way. So 
he ended up dropping um, on the second day and I just carried on and did what I was able to do. So what what is it as somebody who comes from a kind of a more trail background, like you said, you were into trail hundreds. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at this from from your old perspective as somebody I love trail hundreds, I, you know, no interest in Barkley, but I could at least see what what could appeal to somebody about it. it what what is it that keeps you guys coming back to these races, these crazy, crazy races in Tennessee? I mean, you guys are West Coasters. This is not an easy trip for you by any stretch. And now you're coming out here two, three times a year in some cases. Uh, and this seems like it's, you know, more or less a yearly thing. What I mean, is it it can't just be Laz's force of personality or anything like that. Or maybe it is. I don't know. But, you know, Phil is like the same way now. He's he's like obsessed with all this stuff. What 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 is it that keeps you guys coming back? Bob, do you have a good answer to that? <laughs> well, my answers will be different from yours. I mean, for one thing, my parents live in Nashville, so I'm often in Tennessee. Okay, that's something. Yeah, I had never, um, you know, I've been aware of all the different cool Laz races for years, but it had just never worked out until last year. At the last minute, I got into Ball State because I was supposed to do six days in the dome and that was canceled. That got canceled, and right. Because of all the COVID situation, I was able to get into Ball State at the last minute. So that was that was a blast. And then last year, well, first of all, I had a great race. Um, I didn't I didn't win. Um, but I pushed Francesca Muccini to uh, just absolutely incredible performance. And that was very satisfying in itself. And it made me uh, realize that, well, if I'd actually trained for this race, um, I could, you know, legitimately challenge the course record. So I kind of wanted to come back and do that. But more than that, the race, you know, everybody who does this race will tell you it's been transformational for them. And, um, most of the reasons for that didn't really apply to me. If you're out there for seven, eight, nine days, exerting yourself, being sleep deprived, experiencing the camaraderie and the support of, you know, the Tennessee backcountry, um, that's just amazing. And I, I didn't get most of that because I was done in three and a half days and I was <laughs> by myself after the first day and the road angels were mostly not set up. But Nonetheless, um, maybe part of it was just, you know, three and a half days of constant exertion. Maybe part of it was that pushing myself to the absolute limit and not quite getting there, but helping Francesca achieve something truly great. Um, but after the race, it, it took me a while to realize, but over the next few days, I was in this just absolutely incredible mental emotional, spiritual place, I would, I would call it an enlightenment experience actually. And that was, um, an absolute draw to return more than going for the course record. I'd actually planned not to go for the course record. I, I was going to enter crude and go for that three days, seven hours. And I said, forget that. I want the, the more emotional, spiritual experience. I'm going to go screwed and get the more full personal journey experience this time. And, you know, ironically, because I did that and I sort of let go on the ego side of things and was just able to focus on the experience, I unlocked something much better than I would have imagined I could have done. Was it, uh, were, were you nervous about the idea of going screwed, going uncrewed this year, having not, having done it, like you said, crewed the year before and, and for, 
you know, for I think the majority of your multi-day attempts on the track and that sort of stuff, I know you've had crew in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Was it, was it a, was there any fear? Was there trepidation surrounding this or was it more just excitement about a new experience? Not really. I mean, it's, you know, I'm accustomed, you know, when I go to 24, 48 hour, six day races, I'm accustomed to having a crew because when I do those things, I'm trying to make the 24 hour team. I'm trying to set age group records. Everything has to be optimized. And that means you got to have a crew to hand you stuff so you don't waste any time. Um, but, you know, I've certainly run races without crew. I ran a Spartathlon PR without crew. Right. Um, that's a little different because you got eight every two miles. But I was... I was a little burned out. My last two races, I had a really good year last year, but my last two races have been 24 hour attempts, you know, to make the 24 hour team. And they were both failures. And I was really looking just to sort of do something different this time. And so, you know, I, yeah, I was looking to challenge myself and I was looking to just change things and change the experience and go screwed and having to deal with carrying everything I needed and stopping and resupplying and so forth. And just, just make something that was not just the same as what I'd been banging my head against the wall doing. Right. Right. Bev, I, I guess I'd have the, the opposite question for you in, in that, you know, your, your previous attempt at this race was in the screwed category. And, you know, as we said, you know, you've, you've been at Barkley multiple times, which is a famous, I mean, you can have a crew there, but you know, you're famously going to have to be self-reliant there for the vast majority of that. I mean, a crew is going to help you in only only so much that they can do at a race like that. And, you know, you have a long career of doing a lot of these kind of unsupported or, or less supported type things. Was there ever any consideration or do you have any interest in possibly attempting this crude and see if there's a, a faster performance out there? Or is it more just about the experience of being self-reliant? I really have no interest in doing it crude. I'm when I first started doing ultras, 100 milers specifically, I almost always had a crew. And after a few years, I started to, I actually crewed for somebody. And I said, after crewing for somebody at uh, Western States, I said, I will never ask anyone to crew for me again, <laughs> because it is so much work. Yeah. And I, at that point, it was like, I'm, I don't need a crew. And I just started not doing crude events or not using a crew for, for most events. And, you know, we, Alan and I started focusing on things where there was no crew, like the plane 100, where it's, you know, you have one stop <laughs> right. in a hundred miles, 110 miles actually. And everything else is you're on your own. You're taking care of yourself. And um, then of course, Barkley. And then, now, when we kind of found the Vol State format, it was something that was really interesting to both of us. It's all, it's taking care of yourself. And, you know, in when we were together, it was taking care of each other. And it just has always been the way that I want to do these things. I actually talked to Laz about getting rid of the crude category. So I told him, I think it was last year, I told him I would never come back to Vol State until he got rid of the crude category. <laughs> Well, with the type of performances you guys are putting up now, the it almost seems as though the crude and screwed distinction is is going to vanish at, at some point in the next uh, few years. Phil, you, you're the one of the two of us with the firsthand experience on this course. Um, I'm going to have you kind of take Bob and Bev through their races and maybe do a little compare and contrast this year with 
uh, in terms of conditions and experiences with with what you guys had in 2020 and, and what Bev had in 2019. I know this this year was a lot different. Um, before we do that, let me just I, I didn't hit the specifics. Just if, if there's anyone out there who's listening that is not aware of what happened in this race, um, Bob did. You know, as as you had said, Bob, in, in 2020, you were there for your first time. You pushed Francesca Muccini, a great friend of the pod, to uh, uh, an amazing women's course record of three days, 10 hours and 49 minutes. And, you know, you wound up second overall, first male. And this year came back and, again, in the screwed category, not only obliterated the old screwed record uh, held by Greg, Arm- uh, Greg Armstrong in, in 2019, three days, 14 hours, 11 minutes, Greg had also had the previous crude record of three days, seven hours, nine minutes in 2016, and you took that record down as well. Three days, four hours, 19 minutes. That's uh, almost three hours faster than Greg's crude record, 10 hours faster than his screwed record. And Bev, finishing fourth overall this year uh, and second in the, in the screwed category, first screwed female this year in a screwed course record, four days and 19 minutes, just missing the four-day barrier uh, and breaking your own a screwed course record by seven hours. So hopefully I got the details right on that too. Just amazing performances. So yeah, Phil, talk to us a little bit about what I, oh, I talk about question. Damn, I, I screwed it up again. Take take us through this this year with these two amazing athletes in terms of what was different from 2019, 2020, 21, and just how these amazing performances came together. Yeah. So, I mean, when I did it in, uh, 2020 you know it was generally pretty hot we had one significant storm roll through um and uh you know there was a lot of uh torrential kind of rain for a while but it, i feel like this year was a little different in terms of the weather um you know so when did you kind of like it was super wet basically is what i heard from people like these these crazy storms just kept popping up like drowning you guys uh i mean can you talk through kind of the the weather conditions and kind of how the race kind of you know, it looked like from the start when I saw Laz lighting his cigarette, it was all, you know, nice and sunny standing on the side of the river there. Um, and then, you know, all hell broke loose uh, a little bit later on. So if you give us some idea of the, the kind of conditions of the race this year. Okay, I guess I'll start. I think it was probably, it was very different depending on where you were in the race this year. Um, First of all, I would never put nice and sunny in the same sentence applied to right. <laughs> That's um, probably true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me, um, you know, as as we, the thing about Ball State is you you go to the, at least if you're screwed, you go to the finish and you get on the bus and you ride, you spend the day before the race riding the bus backwards along the course to the start so you see everything. And as we did, every little town we went through, I would check the weather forecast for that town the next day and it would be, oh my God, it's like in Parsons, the high is supposed to be 83, you know, the next two wow. days. And it's like, I may have to seriously re-evaluate my objectives here. Um, and it did turn out to be, at least for me, cooler overall than last year. Maybe I think maybe last year was a reasonably hot year, except for that, that big thunderstorm we had, which, you know, I discovered last year, that thunderstorm, that was by far my most efficient part of the race. I was able to right. run fast the whole way and um, got maximal cooling. And so to the extent that there was rain this year, um, I loved that. Um, I didn't have any foot issues, fortunately, with with the rain. Um, my taping job sucked and came off the first afternoon. 
And after that, I just, I slathered my, my feet with squirrel's nut butter and I never had any, any issues. I, I ran through, it was a massive thunderstorm the first night. It was really just an amazing thing to run through. There's continuous lightning in every direction. Um, just incredible light show, but none of it was striking, you know, dangerously nearby. So it seemed. So I was just powering through that. I saw, you know, I think I saw Andy Pearson, who was had been in the lead that time, huddling under a church as I went by. Somebody with a headlamp, anyway. I think it must have been him. A lot of people took cover, and I powered through that. So that was part of what put me ahead at the end of the first day. Um, it's a lot of overcast. A lot of 80s instead of 90s. You know, was more typical last year, and fair amount of rain. I don't think I had as much rain as, well, Bev was out there for longer than I was and she had more rain, but also it just really depended on where you were on the course. Apparently there right. was one runner, according to Laz, who never experienced any rain the entire course. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And it was just very localized weather going on. So for me, the weather was pretty good. And I would not, you know, that performance would, that I had would not have been possible without that weather. If it had been last year's weather, you know, last year, you know, crew gives you a lot of things. They, they give you moral support. They give you, they save you having to stop at the convenience stores and have that overhead. But um, there was one thing last year, you know, there were parts of the race when my crew would meet me every two miles, sometimes every mile with ice and stuff it in my shirt and stuff it in my hat, stuff it in my pack. That's, that's not a matter of overhead. That's something you simply cannot get if you're screwed. And mm. so if weather conditions are hot and clear, you're just going to suffer. And fortunately, yeah. I, I really only had one afternoon of those conditions and I stopped in a hotel for three hours to get out of it. Um, otherwise, the conditions were pretty good and pretty favorable for me. Right. And uh, Bev, how, how did you get on? How did the storms affect you? I know you said that your feet were basically you had trench foot by the end of it kind of thing. Yeah, my feet do not do well when they're wet. So, and I've known that for years. I just, I try to avoid having wet feet. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we started out when we were on that drive backwards through the course, it rained the entire time. And I was absolutely freaked out thinking we're going to be in rain the entire time. And I started trying to calm myself down and go, okay, it's raining the entire time, but this is spot storms. They just happen to be hitting when we get to these separate, you know, these different spots. So hopefully it may be raining throughout the course, but maybe I'll miss it. So I, you know, I tried to work my way through that. And the first day was pretty decent. It was cloudy for a good portion of the day and then kind of opened up, I suppose, early to mid afternoon um, with the sun and it got a little hot. And that's when Alan really started to suffer a bit. Um, so we kept on with that and the storms didn't hit until, until after dark. Um, right. and, and they hit fast and I was completely unprepared. I'd done nothing for my feet. Uh, I just kind of thought, well, okay, I got hit hard. My feet are wet. There's no sense doing anything now. I'll just see, you know, hopefully this will pass quickly and my feet will dry out a little bit. But it was, I think it was like five or six hours of these storms just coming one after the other. Um, and, you know, I kept moving through it. But the thing that I had that was easiest to get at to cover myself was an emergency blanket. So I kept thinking when the when the sheet lightning turned to cloud to ground lightning, I started kind of thinking, 
oh my gosh, I'm I'm a walking lightning rod. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to keep going and, and ignoring the fact that I was covered in metal. Um, kept going with that and just, you know, that took my mind off my feet. But by the time it was, oh, maybe five in the morning, my feet hurt so bad. The, because of, the the wet my the skin had folded under my feet and blisters were forming uh and i could feel it and it was just getting worse and worse my initial plan had been to get to linden before even thinking about getting a hotel and i got you know five o'clock in the morning and said i gotta stop in lexington i've got to dry out my feet and start over so you know i stopped in Lex- lexington got everything dried out stayed in the hotel for a couple hours and then carried on and the you know most of the next day the most of day two was pretty dry um and then there was one storm again that hit in the afternoon so again totally wet wet feet all over again and these it's not like you have any kind of warning that these storms are going to hit you can't go oh in five minutes or in ten minutes i'm going to be getting wet i need to do something with my feet it's like sunny and dry and then it's pouring (laughs) so it was always going to these wet feet and you know i went through the course of the race i went through nine pairs of socks i was buying socks at dollar trees along the way (laughs) but you know even if you put on dry socks and dry out your feet you're still going into wet shoes right so you never get dry and it just it got worse and worse and worse and by the end of it like half of each of my feet was covered in moleskin and tape. And, wow. <laughs> and I yeah. just oh my gosh. kept going through the storms. So Yeah, it's a hard hard trade-off, I guess. You know, having slightly, you know, better temperatures, but having that amount of water coming down on you, it's uh, kind of tricky. I mean, I guess maybe the water's better, but, you know, if your feet fall apart and you can't move, then you've got, you know, you've got real problems. Yeah. So, yeah, so it sounds like a little epic in terms of uh, precipitation this year. Um, yeah, it, it was a little different. You know, the last couple of years that I've done the different races, the big issue with feet has been that they they literally feel like they're cooking inside your yeah. shoe. It's so yeah. hot and you're walking on the white line to try to stay, keep them a little bit cooler. And that, you know, that simply wasn't an issue this year, but I'd rather. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. So, but, so there was, there was. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bob. I was going to say about shoes, you know, I, like I said, I lucked out because I didn't really have, I had toe blisters. I always get toe blisters and I just drained them in the hotels, but I didn't have issues with macerated feet. I mentioned last year after the race, my feet were really, really trashed. And I agonized this year about what shoes to wear because um, I'd worn these uh, New Balance Beacon V1s last year, shoes that I love, long discontinued, um, but they just didn't have quite enough cushioning. And so I hemmed and hawed and tried all these different things leading up to the race, but everything else I tried, I wasn't really happy with. So in the end, I used my, my very last pair of beacons that I'd saved, but I added a second pair of insoles. And those second insoles added just a little bit of cushioning, but they also, you know, maybe added a little bit of drainage, maybe a little bit of heat protection. Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, it, I, I, I was really happy with how that, how that turned out. Yeah, I remember when I did it uh, in 2020, I had a brand new pair of shoes on at the beginning 
And then by the end, I'd completely worn the soul of them. I was kind of down to the to the midsole. Uh, so you know the the heat of the road and the the shuffling along is pretty detrimental to your uh, your shoe yep. situation. Would you guys ever buy? Sh- I mean, you're, you're buying all kinds of stuff. I mean, did, did the thought ever cross your mind to just you know buy a new pair of shoes, dry pair of shoes, and see what happened? Not a lot of options for that on yeah, these courses. Not. I mean, <laughs> Walmart would be really the only place that would have shoes of any kind. And right. I'm, sure those would not be good for anyone's feet fair enough yeah fair enough people people have certainly done that Um, i had actually planned to because i wasn't sure what pair to start in i had planned to um mail ahead a pair of shoes to myself to a post office in columbia (laughs) but then i found out that's illegal i was gonna ask about that right yeah and you can't you can't cash if you're if well i guess that takes you out of screwed it means if you cash something right 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 so i couldn't do that yeah no, that makes sense. So, Bev, you had mentioned that Alan ran into some problems this year and, and uh, you know, dropped out uh, on, on day two. Um, I definitely want to get the story about the wallet. But w- just just from, from the standpoint of how that affected your race, I mean, in, 20, in 2019, you guys basically ran the whole way together. And I know you guys have, you know, do a lot of training and racing together. You know, how much of a how hard was it to kind of separate when he was struggling and, you know, how much of a low point was that? How, how much did that affect you mentally or emotionally, you know, still staring down the barrel of several hundred miles to go, you know, when you thought you were going to be doing it with, you know, your, your partner and, and now, you know, having to face that down solo? It was a tough decision to make just because we had planned on being together. And it's really hard when you're thinking we're going to be there to help each other. Uh, and then for one of that team to say, I'm out of here. Right. It, it's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, he, he knew that he was struggling in the heat and it was really difficult. Um, you know, he couldn't go as fast as I could when the sun came out. And for me to slow down to a walk was just destroying my Achilles. So, you know, it, it came down to what's going to be the worst for both of us. If, if I had to continue to walk, he could very well have been carrying me at some point because I just, my Achilles was not going to take that. And it was so much less painful to, to do a jog. Um, so yeah, it was hard to, to leave on that. And then, you know, I got into Gleason about 15 minutes ahead and he, he showed up and I thought, Oh, well, you know, he didn't, lose a lot of time on that period and as soon as it gets dark he's going to come back because he travels much better at night than I do he's better with sleep deprivation I thought no problem he's going to be back in this and then you know when the storms hit I didn't know how he was doing and then you know he lost his wallet and things just sort of snowballed from there and uh, but it was hard it was you know when I left Lexington when I left the hotel I was just thinking of all these huge long stretches where, you know, a couple of years ago, we had each other, we were chatting, we were helping each other. We were, you know, if he ran out of water, I could give him some of mine. If I ran out of Tylenol or whatever, he could give me some of his. And we were always there to help each other. And I was looking at this as, oh, I got nothing. Right. <laughs> um, I, I've got to do everything on my own. I, there's not going to be one person going into the, 
mini mart while the other preps the packs to fill with water that's I've got to do everything from now on. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a big thing to look at that and try to sort out how I was going to deal with it um, for the first while. Uh, and then, you know, as I started going, he was there with me. He was, there were a lot of sections where I remembered how it went with him. And I just sort of was reliving some of those sections. Um, after Linden, there's a huge long stretch of nothing till Hohenwald. And in 2019, that's where we came up with the Walking With Purpose song. So when I got to that on my own, I just started singing that and I was talking and I was talking to him all, all, all the time. And, you know, it just, I tried to keep him there with me as I was going and as difficult as that was. That's awesome. That's awesome. So yeah, we, we were, you know, following from afar and we got the report from Laz that Alan had lost his wallet and was turning around to go back because obviously if somebody brings him his wallet, he is now, you know, crude at that point. And, and I, I mean, my, my immediate reaction was uh, I would just be crude and I don't care at that point. I'm not running another 10 miles or five miles back and five miles forward just to do it. But for some reason, you, you guys don't all think that way. I don't, I don't understand what the <laughs> well, add an extra 10 miles, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of surprised me when he said he was going to go back and it didn't come out until later that, um, Becca's crew had offered to go back to Kimberly and get his stuff for him. And his immediate response to them was, no, that'll make me crude. <laughs> and when he told me that, I was like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> that was exactly what my response would have been. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. I, I didn't, from my standpoint, I didn't get it, but I'm sure if I had been in the same situation, I would have probably done the same thing. Right, right. Although I might've thought, I'll just hang out in Lexington and have Kim meet me here. <laughs> and then it's just another runner helping you. So it's not right, crude. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. But he, he felt like he had to go back and, you know, that added, I think, 12 miles to his day yeah. and just put him in a bad place. No, that was just the, that seemed like the straw that broke the, the camel's back, so to speak. Yeah, well, and it was, you know, by the time he realized that he had lost all of his money and credit cards and stuff, he had already been without water and food for a couple of hours because he realized it when he got to a mini mart and was and gonna buy to some buy stuff. something, right, oh gosh. Yeah, so, you know, that was a couple hours of nothing and then he kept heading forward until he found out that Kim had his stuff. So that was another couple hours heading in the right direction and then turning around six miles back and then turning around six miles forward again. So, you know, he was probably six to eight hours of no food and water. That's unrecoverable. And it at that just, point. yeah. yeah. Um, Bob, you're, you're, I was going to say you're known in the ultra world for a number of different things, but I, I, <laughs> I think one of the things that you're most known for is your pacing strategy at both 24 hours and multi-day type things and, and just being uh, very, I don't want to say regimented in a bad way, but, but very specific on your pacing and yep. uh, being one of, I think, the few uh, you know, 24-hour type runners who, who really do pace them out very, very evenly to, to great success. The, the pacing that you had in this race was uncanny and uh, really, really amazing to watch from afar. But I got to imagine that that's much more difficult 
you know, an a point-to-point multi-day race with no crew and, and, you know, just intermittent opportunities for, you know, aid or whatever uh, type things you might need. Tell us a little bit about how you strategized for this in terms of, because you're very analytical and I'm sure you had a, a general idea of how you wanted to approach this in terms of the pacing. Did you plan on pacing it out as well as it did, or, or did it was that more of just a uh, kind of a, a lucky coincidence that it worked out so evenly? Um, I would never have imagined that I was going to run three days, four hours screwed. I was just, um, you know, I had a spreadsheet. Last year I had a spreadsheet and I mapped it all out in detail. I'd estimated paces for each segment between all the towns. It, it wouldn't be and a race year, unless, it wouldn't be a race if you didn't have a yeah, spreadsheet. Yeah, and this year... <laughs> You know, like I said, my approach going into it was to try to step away from that. You know, I wouldn't say give up on that aspect of my personality, my racing style, but to more embrace a sort of a different running philosophy. You know, you look at the really great runners like Kuros, you know, he 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 doesn't run like, you know, planning out his splits. He runs with joy. He runs with movies playing in his head of his family and people that he loves and lives in the moment. And that's always sort of been the antithesis of my running style. But I've, you know, come more and more to appreciate that and see how that kind of running can really unlock great performances. So that was really more what I was after. Now, I, you know, my brain works a certain way and I'm not able to completely step away from this you know, more analytic mode. And so I did have my spreadsheet from last year and I did tweak the numbers a little bit, but I wasn't obsessing over it during the race. Um, I was aware, you know, I was going to start a little faster than last year. Last year I started a little conservatively and I still, you know, I negative split the race last year and I had a great race and I thought, well, you know, not having a crew is going to cost me something, but I think, especially given the conditions, I can get away with starting faster than I did last year. And we'll see what happens, you know, maybe, I can come in under the, those three days, 14 hours, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to let the race unfold as it unfolds. And I thought I was going to be racing Greg because Greg first was in the race and then he was out of the race and then he was in the race again, like a week before the race started. And he was, he was also running screwed. So I was really looking forward to the race with Greg because I thought among other things, one of the things that you need to unlock a really great performance is to have a race, to have some competition. Like I was pushing Francesca last year. I was really looking forward to pushing Greg and I pushing each other. And I was certainly well aware that Bev and Alan were out there as well. I thought it was going to be between the four of us, but um, you know, I, I felt pretty confident at coming in under four days and um, you know, maybe Bev and Alan could do that. You know, last year I had not worried enough about Francesca because <laughs> she had run, you know, four days, four hours, and then she beat that by some insane amount. So never take anything for anything granted. For granted. But I, yeah. I thought probably I was going to be racing Greg and then Greg had a bad start and dropped out. But, um, I was just, I was just sort of rolling with it and the weather cooperated and I had, I learned enough last year and I just have enough cumulative experience with multi-days to where things never really got out of hand. And I was able to sort of, you know, Bev talked about going into Gleason where, where Alan was suffering from the heat. I was suffering from the heat as well. Um, and Bev told me at the end of the race, you know, when I saw you there in Gleason, I, I kind of thought you were done. Huh. And, um, I did, you know, I took an hour, I had an hour and a half break in Gleason. I had an hour long nap. I did That's get the a little fire station. Is it in Gleason? Yes. 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 
incredible yeah. road angel station. I planned from the beginning to take a break of a couple hours in the afternoon. And so that worked really well. Um, I wouldn't even have changed anything. Yeah, I went out a little fast, but that gave me the opportunity to cool down and give myself a little nap heading into the evening. So the whole time I was just, I was thinking I'm running in control. I feel good. And I'm ahead of where I was last year, which means, you know, maybe that screwed record will happen. It wasn't until I was about halfway through the race that I began to realize, well, wait a minute, you know, I can look ahead. I can see, you know, 200 miles in 48 hours. And if I look at the comparison to last year, that means, you know, I should really be able to be under those three days, seven hours. And that was just kind of mind blowing because I would never have, never have planned that. That would have just been ridiculous. Right, right. What was the lowest point for each of you guys? I know it sounded from Laz's recaps, Bob, like you had a couple of very timely road angels who just not even planned, yeah. kind of quote unquote, planned road angels, just literal road angels offering you water out of the side of the car. Where, where were the lowest points for each of you during the course and, and kind of what turned it around for you? You want to go, Beth? Oh, sure. I think probably one of the lowest for me was um, after Hohenwald. I, when I went into Hohenwald, I knew there should be a road angel stop from two years ago when I was there with Alan. There was a, a awning and cots and things. And I thought, okay, I'm, I need a rest here. I need to get, you know, 20 minutes or so of sleep. And as I was coming into town, there was a bar that was open and people were outside and there was dancing and music and whatnot. And I just kept cruising past that. And after I went past that, I realized the stop was like right there, right beside that spot. And I just kept going because I didn't want to be anywhere near all this noise. Uh, and then as I was going through Hohenwald, I came to a, a sign on the road, on the side of the road saying, all state road angel stop in here and i went to open the door and it was locked oh, and it was god. just this devastating oh my god this is some horrible joke <laughs> <Someone is playing>. <laughs> <laughs> so i kept going and you know after hohenwald there's this huge long downhill and flat horribleness and i just middle of the night i'm just running down this road screaming just trying to keep myself awake there was nothing I could do. And I'm just cruising down the road. I've got my trekking poles and I sort of slowed down for a little while. And I started hearing some weird little noise on the hill beside me. And I thought, this is really weird. This is a bird I've never heard before. I kept going. About a mile later, I realized this noise was following me. And I took my light and turned it on bright and shone it up the hill. And it was a deer. It was a doe that was following me and squeaking at me. And I'm, you know, I, when I went afterwards and, and Googled noises deer make, <laughs> it seems like she may have lost a fawn and thought I was a fawn. And she was making the kinds of sounds that deer make to, you know, calm their fawns. And she probably heard me screaming and thought, oh, my God, I'm, I need to take care of this. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just I kept going and at the time I thought, okay, she's either trying to comfort me or she's going to attack me. So I started running and eventually just lost her. She stopped chasing or following me. And I kept going, coming into the morning, 
I still hadn't had any sleep. I hadn't been eating. I'd been kind of sick to my stomach for a long time. And so I hadn't been able to keep anything down. And I just wanted to get to Columbia. And it was, and it's a long, long way from, you know, you hit Hampshire and then climbs and rolling hills. And then you finally get into Columbia. Um, and that stretch about killed me. And I knew that the Flores were coming behind me because every once in a while I'd see their crew vehicle. Uh, and it's like, I just don't care. I just, I'll die on the side of the road or I'll get to Columbia and I just don't care. And hopefully when I get into the hotel, they will get well past me and I will never see them again. Unfortunately, <laughs> that didn't happen. It was like they were taunting me the rest of the way. <laughs> but uh, that, you know, that stretch from Honewald to Columbia was probably my lowest. And it was a very long stretch. <laughs> <laughs> What about yeah, you, Beth? I remember that section. Very long. So, never ends. Yes. Yes. And you I, never feel like you're it. getting there. It's just like, when am I actually going to get there? Yeah. 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 So I had a couple of low points, and my first was actually that same stretch. And that was kind of where greed caught up with me because um, coming into Hohenwald, I was looking ahead to my 36-hour split, and I was realizing – well, if I, if I keep up a decent pace to 36 hours, I'm going to be at 150 miles. And that's when I sort of realized I, did, I could do the math and I could see that I could probably run another 50 miles through the night and get to Lewisburg's and, and look at the overall course record. And so I got, I got greedy um, and I pushed it just a little bit because my leg, I'd had a few issues with my right hamstrings um, on that long climb up to Hohenwald and then it kind of moved into glutes and moved into knee and it was a little bit uncomfortable. And so I got a little bit greedy and pushed it a little bit too hard. And then from Hohenwald to Hampshire, there's a lot of downhill that, you know, most of the race I do a run walk and I can talk about that later. I just did a whole bunch of analysis of my actual run walk this race, which I've never done before, but that's a stretch when you feel like you really ought to be running because if you're not, you're just wasting this this nice, gradual downhill that you know you really need to be running that. Otherwise, you're just giving up time. So I ran and I ran and I ran, and by the time I got to Hampshire, it felt like my quads were just shot, and I was like, "What the hell? Did I just I got just a little bit greedy and torched my quads?" And I don't remember feeling this way here last year, but I do remember that, you know my regular exercises leading up to the race, I had a little bit slacked off on my eccentric quad drops, which is something that I normally do because, you know, one of the first things that goes in a multi-day is, is your quads just because this repetitive eccentric motion. And um, I was like, well, damn, I'm halfway through the race and my quads are already done. And, oh, well, I got greedy and just screwed my race. And so it was a lot of walking um, after Hampshire uh, most of the way to Columbia was was slow walking, and I'd at that point given up any hope of that 50-mile second night and didn't know what to do. Eventually, took an Advil because there, there wasn't any place by the side of the road I could really stop and just try to rest in that stretch. Um, took an Advil thinking, you know, masking the pain is really not going to do any good, but I was able to gradually start running again, and... Um, I needed some more Advil the, the third night, but it didn't, you know, my, my legs were fine after that, really. And 
somehow I was able to run through the second night with zero breaks. So I did hit that 50 miles. Um, so that was my first low point. My second low point, the, oh my God, you got to be kidding me moment was at 48 hours when I got into Lewisburg, I was really looking forward to my three hour hotel stop at the Celebration Inn. And so I called ahead, say, hey, can you give me an early check-in? I'm going to be there, you know, like at 7.30. And they said, oh, well, sorry, we've got a conference going. We're, we're fully booked. And I'm like, well, wait, that's, that's the only hotel there is that's on the course in Lewisburg. And the next hotel on the course is another 22 miles in Shelbyville. And Shelbyville is really disrecommended for hotels. Right. Um, <laughs> but I decided, okay, I'm just going to have to stick it out. And uh, the section about 10 miles from Wheel to Shelbyville was just brutal sun. It was around noon and the sun was directly overhead and really hot. And that's when I was really feeling that not having my crew and not getting my ice every mile or two. Right. And fortunately, like Laz had commented, two or three times in there, road angels came by and gave me water when I really desperately needed it. But that stretch was just interminable. And I got to Shelbyville and stayed in, you know, this disrecommended hotel for three hours and had a pretty good race after that. Tell us a little bit, you, you alluded to your, your run-walk strategy, because I'm curious about that. I know that's been a strategy for you in, in multi-days on the track and, and the road before. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so again, is it that t tell us a little bit about the plan, you know, how, how specifically you plan that out and how, you know, hard that is or easy that is for you to follow. And then, Bev, I want to talk to you about that as well in terms of, is that something that you kind of plan for in a multi-day or is that, you know, are, are you more just like, you know, how, how does, you know, kind of moment to moment, how are you feeling? So for me, this really goes back to when I first started running 24. So I had a friend who had been on the 24 hour team. And before my first 24 hour at the end of 2014, he advised me to do a run walk, um, just do a little bit of walking, like walk a minute every mile or, you know, something like that. And I gradually, you know, I built something like that into my, um, into my standard performance for that kind of race. Um, when I moved up to six day and started planning out spreadsheets and numbers, I realized that, gee, if my walk were faster, that would make a huge difference. And so I put a lot of effort in treadmill training into developing a faster walk. And that has stayed with me and been a real benefit at these long races. Um, I didn't plan a particular strategy like 50, 50 run walk or 10 minutes on or two minutes off or whatever. What I planned was, um, try to maintain a certain average pace over this segment of like four and a half miles an hour, five miles an hour, you know, something like that and run when it's comfortable. And if I see that I'm going too fast, start walking. And if I see that I'm going too slow, start running. So that's kind of the way that it played out. I wasn't keeping track of time or distance that I ran and walked, but um, I did have a fast walk and I just actually spent the last 24 hours doing a thorough analysis of my GPS data from the race. And I can tell you that this year I ran 45% um, of the time of the time and walked 55% of the time. Wow. Um, and, and it was more the reverse by distance. I ran about 55% of the distance and walked about 45% of the distance. Wow. I never would have guessed it would have been that high. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have either. I would have guessed last year it would have about 50-50, but this year was um, eight hours faster. And still I walked more than I ran by time. Wow. That's nice. wow. Now, just 
to 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 just dig into that a little further. Uh, you know, having seen you race forty eight hour at, at three days of the fair, um, and you know, seeing firsthand how quickly you walk. Do you do you build? So you you said this was more of an overall. Um, you know, have have a goal for a segment. Is that similar to how you approach it for a twenty four or forty eight or a six day, or is that more regimented? Like I have, you know, fifteen minutes run, two minutes walk, or or some sort of, you know, hard, you know, yeah. stops in terms of of timing when you're on like a loop course like that. Yeah, it's more regimented for a twenty four. It'll typically be like if it's a twenty four hour on a track, it will be. I'll have a time target for like six lap blocks and I'll plan to walk for one minute every six laps. And that's when I'll be to do my drinking and, and refueling as well. That would be a typical thing. And gotcha. then it varies depending, depending on the, you know, I'll be walking more at 48 and walking a lot more at six day. Right. Right. And Bev, do you approach it in this way at all? Or is it much, is it more by feel? I am not nearly as analytical as Bob apparently Yeah, few, few people are. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for all of these, runs that I've done so far, and I certainly would not call myself experienced at this kind of distance or time. Um, I've, for the first like 12 hours, I just run as much as I can, just jog. Uh, And then I start breaking it down and thinking, okay, I'm going to run downhills and flats and I'll walk the hills. And when things start turning into a bit of a slog or things are get a little late at night or whatever then i'll start doing a two to one of in some way so it'll either be counting steps to two runs for every one so maybe 200 strides of running to 100 strides of walking or two telephone poles of running to one telephone pole of walking or something so that i can break it down like that so Mm. but it's it's a lot more by feel and whether I'm having fun or not, that's, you know, that's something that I've always believed was really important with my running. And, you know, I've, I've never followed training plans for anything. I just feel like if I'm not having fun, I'm, I don't want to be out here. So what I do is stuff that I can have fun doing. Right. So that's how I approach it. I think that's a good way to do it. I mean, it's certainly, I feel a bit guilty, but when I did Vol State, I mean, I mostly had fun. I mean, I, I had a good time. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I know it's a bit of a suffer fest, but I was actually having a good time out there. <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. Yeah, the, the rash that you sent me a picture of afterwards would disagree. Yes, that was a bad rash. <laughs> yeah, I was just very fortunate that you didn't say to me, Phil, go directly to an emergency room. <laughs> I think you were like, that's going to that's gonna need cleaning and uh, it's going to hurt, but it's going to go away over a few months. <laughs> And it did take a few months to go away. It was pretty bad heat rash. Yeah. Phil, do you have any more questions about Vol State 2021? Because I just have a couple more before we finish. I know we've taken a lot of Yeah, I mean, I. what do you guys eat out there? I mean, I just found that I ended up just like my go-to was ice cream. I'd go into stores. I'd get two ice creams. I'd leave with one each each hand. (laughs) And it's all I could eat. You know, I I did spend a lot of time nursing a pound of cheese. But after about 12 hours, I thought I probably should throw this away because um, it had sweated itself pretty yeah. you know, pretty aggressively <laughs> over the course of 12 hours in the Tennessee heat. Uh, and I was like, 12 hours is probably more than you need to carry a piece of cheese around for. Uh, yeah, what are you guys eating? I mean, I found it hard to eat and find stuff I liked. Uh, but, I mean, what, what were your go-tos out there? Um, the last couple of 
of these runs that I've done with Alan, we've really lived a lot off of chicken biscuits. Right. This time, for whatever reason, the places where we got chicken biscuits a couple of years ago, they, they never had anything like that. So it was whatever I could find that was quick and easy. One thing I never do in these is go somewhere where they have to make me food. If right. I can't just grab it and go, yeah. I don't yeah. want it. Um, I did a lot more chocolate milk this year than I have in the past. Um, I, the first one I got was like a full-on chocolate milk, like 400 and something calories. Right. And it was so rich. I just felt sick for hours. So after that, I went with the YooHoo and that was perfect. It was yeah. fantastic. Um, and then a couple other things, uh, I haven't eaten a wiener in probably 20 years, but corn dogs with mustard were right. amazing. So, <laughs> I are was those, looking for corn dogs. <laughs> are those what they call roller dogs? Are they the ones who you go in and it's like rolling on like a wheel? There's like, uh, it keeps a, the dogs on They're a hot. Well, but a, cor- a corn, with yeah, like corn dog is like cornmeal that's and it's oh, deep fried right. in like okay. a cornmeal yeah. shell. Oh, that's, ah. it's delicious. They, mm. yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll have that on ice cream next year. Smear <laughs> it with mustard and you got everything you need. Yeah. So that was something that I, and that was pretty late in the game that I discovered yeah. that that went down really easily. Um, other than that, it was just whatever, whatever I could grab. Yeah. Gummy worms were another thing. I've never had gummy worms in one of these. And one road angel gave me this huge bag of gummy worms and said, this will take you through. And it was like, Oh my God, these are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How have I not had gummy worms in one of these <laughs> races before? Sounds good. Wow. Well, what were your go-tos? Well, I, um, you know, I probably ate less than most runners cause I, that's really why I train keto is so I don't need as much food during race. So right, I was burning right. a lot of body fat. Um, I ate, uh, let's see, payday bars. Um, I stopped at fast food a couple times, McDonald's, Subway, um, I generally had one of my vest bottles filled with either Coke or Gatorade just for a little trickle of calories. Yeah. Um, when I stopped at the Commodore in Linden, I ordered their special from the cafe, which was mac and cheese and hot dogs. Um, wow. I also had a corn dog later in the race. Um, yeah, no, um, I, that guess that was something that was interesting from last year is that usually when I run these long races, I have my own sort of custom drink mix that I've, engineered myself that's a little bit like morton and you know last year i had my crew mixing it for me and i'd always have that in the bottle and i didn't want to carry you know mountains of powder with me and be mixing drinks so i just went with what was there and it was fine yeah 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 so you know the the question that i always have after a, a huge effort like this uh, especially for folks like yourself who are kind of you know in the in the las hive at this at this stage is um you know, this this is a, an a, a event that translates for me seems to translate skill set wise very uh, easily to uh, a backyard, and I'm always curious as to whether folks like yourself, uh, like yourselves, have interest in the backyard. I don't think either of you have been to Bigs. Is that right? No. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was entered two years ago. But I remember it was too that close to six days of the dome, and I didn't right. start. Right. Yeah. Um, is that a race that either of you would ever, you know, think about? You know, but again, it, the 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 crossover in terms of just you know 
steady forward movement and sleep deprivation are really the only two skills that you need to survive there. And it seems like that would be the, the right up your guys alley. I tried the virtual quarantine backyard mm -hmm. early in 2020. And I don't like the format of stopping and starting every hour. Right. I would rather just go. And there was, there was another um, race director who put on the ultra virus race, which was similar to the backyard, except you just kept going. You had your five mile, whatever, and you just did as many as you could in 12 hours. He just did it for 12 hour. And I was much happier doing that. It right. was just, it was my, my pacing, my schedule. If I wanted to stop for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I could, if I wanted to just keep going, I could do that. You just had to check in after every five miles and, you know, upload your Strava. They, yeah, that stopping and starting is not, not for you. me. What about you, Bob? Well, for me, in multi-day sleep deprivation has always been my Achilles heel, really. But this race was kind of a breakthrough for me in sleep deprivation. I'm still kind of processing what happened because I, um, I really ran through three nights with very little very little stopping, you know, no stopping at all the second night, five minutes the third night, um, half hour the first night. And um, so there's some interesting psychology there that I need to process. But um, I also really have I'm not a huge fan of the backyard format. Um, I think it's gotten too popular and I'm not a fan of that much cumulative sleep deprivation, yeah. not being able to get more than five or 10 minutes of sleep at a time. Right. That said, Bag Biggs is, you know, a legendary event and I have a lot of really good friends who run it. And yeah, I would, I would take the chance to go and do it, except it always conflicts with Spartathlon, which is my favorite race. So, right. so yeah, if Spartathlon is canceled this year, maybe I will beg and plead with Laz, but um, I don't have a qualifier. Like Bev, I ran the quarantine backyard um, last year, but that wasn't a real real backyard. Right. So. Right. So I always have to ask about Biggs. Um, and Phil always has to ask about Barkley. Bev, you're, you're one of, I think only three women ever to, to finish a fun run at Barkley. Any, any chance you'll be going back there at any point in the future? I think that's in my past at this point. I'm good for you. Um, getting on in years and it's, it, you know, when we were doing it, it was a huge, time sink to train for that right and i just at my advanced age now you know this is 10 years on from when i did it previously um i would have to put in so much time i just i don't know that my body would hold up to it um right. so yeah and i think it's, it's up to the younger crowd <laughs> <laughs> bob as a, as a road and track uh specialist i assume uh, Barkley has no particular appeal for you. I wouldn't say it has no appeal, but it's very far outside my skill set. Right. And I think for me to do it, it would have to be more important to me than it is. Well um, said. So yeah. it's probably it's probably not likely. Yeah. yeah. Good. You're both very very wise, very wise <laughs> elders of the sport. <laughs> Phil, you could learn it too from these two. You could learn a thing. Yeah, it's probably at my advanced years. It's probably beyond me as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to. Uh, Jumping over, try not to trip over armadillos in the middle of the night in uh, in Tennessee. I think that's uh, <laughs> that's more my bag at this point. You know, just uh, venturing into the night in uh, in Tennessee is way more fun. Well, it's, it's 
safer and you can count the different kinds of roadkill that you see nowhere else in the <laughs> <Yeah>. country. <laughs> Yep. And some of the fantastic smells out on the road. It's just the wonderful <laughs> aroma. <laughs> the three of you are all yeah. insane. Uh, I say that with, with love and respect. Um, I, you guys... <laughs> uh, I have one, uh, one question, actually, for you guys. Um, so, you know, after the race, I had this, like, weird thing where I kept waking up in the morning for a while and feeling like I had to go running. I kept sort of startled waking up, like, i got to get my stuff and go. And I'm like, no, the race ended a few days ago. Everything's fine. I mean, how were you guys afterwards? Like, you know, I know that obviously physically beaten up, but like mentally, I mean, I just, every time I drove past a gas station, I would check to see the vending machine, assess the quality <laughs> of the gas station. It'd be like, oh, it's a big gas station. So I'll probably have like a really nice range of drinks, probably have a good ice cream stash in there, you know, maybe some nice pizza. I just had this and I still, you know, if I see a vending machine even now, I sort of have a look at it and I'm like, oh, I wonder what they've got. Do they take notes, coins, credit cards? <laughs> you know, I have this like this thing that I'll probably never shake. Uh, can you have any like post-race experiences outside of the sort of broken bodies, you know, on the, on the mental side of things? I think my big thing is looking for socks. Whenever right. I'm in anything, it's like, what kind of socks do they have here? Do yeah. I need some socks? <laughs> Well, I already mentioned, you know, this, this like incredible enlightenment experience I had after last year's race. And so I was kind of, I knew it wouldn't be the, necessarily be the same this year, but I was looking forward to something like that. And it, I had something like that, whatever physiologically happened to my brain last year happened again this year. And that manifested, um, in, you know, certainly emotional experiences but also uh, just purely in terms of sleep like the first 24 hours after i finished the race i think i slept about two hours right i was wide awake the rest of the time the day after that i um got in the car with paul heckert drove backwards along the course to cheer everybody else on and was completely alert mm -hmm. the entire day um two three days you know after the race i would get just couple hours sleep at night and I could look at my Uro ring data and I was getting zero REM sleep and just like two, three hours total sleep. And I was fine. Yeah. And then after that, a switch flips and it's like, Oh my God, I feel like I've been hit by a truck and right. I'm, and then after that is when you wake up and you're convinced that the race is still going and you have to do something. <laughs> and that lasted about two weeks, every single time yeah. in the middle of the night, I would, be in this mental context of having to do something and not knowing what I had to do. And still it's been almost three weeks now and I'm not, now it's not so much that I think I'm still in the race, but there's some more general context there of, Oh my God, there's something that I'm supposed to be doing and I can't quite figure out how to do it. And mm. it's really important that I do this and not let other people down. And yeah, that'll fade. It was even worse after six day that lasted for like a month or so. Right. Yeah. Wow. Bob, you, you've mentioned a couple of times this, kind of uh, sensation of enlightenment or, or some sort of emotional uh, upheaval related to this race. Is, is that something you've experienced before with any of your previous um, multi-day or 24-hour attempts or, or at Spartathlon or anything like that? And, and, you know, I mean, obviously this has been kind of profound for you. Is that, I, I don't, yeah, I, I mean, it seems like, it seems like that would be dangerous in that, in that it would be almost something kind of addictive or something that you might feel the need to chase going forward. Not to put words in your well, mouth or anything. 
Yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't say that. Certainly, it's something that um, I value. And um, that was a big reason for running this race again. I would put it, yeah, I, I wouldn't think I would quite use the word addiction. I would, because I think that the mental state that I achieved there is a very um, positive thing. It's a, it's a more, um, I felt like I was in a more genuine space interacting with the world. I was more mindful of how my mind was working, of what I was feeling, of what I was thinking. I had a much more um, healthy outlook on life. And it's something that I would love to, you know, be able to integrate that attitude more into my daily experience. So I think it's very positive and beneficial. Um, certainly, I never had any experience as strong as that before Ball State last year. Now, I will say, you know, I've been meditating for a few years now and, and reading about you know, Buddhism and various related, you know, aspects of spirituality, mindfulness, whatever. Um, Six Days the Dome, um, three years ago, three years ago, yeah, two years ago. Um, by about the fifth day, I entered this really sort of, you know, I don't know what to call it, super mindful state that was definitely a non-ordinary state of consciousness. It wasn't quite the same as after Vol State. And this year during Vol State, I had sort of the, you know, maybe emotional spiritual crux for me was the climb up Mont Eagle in the middle of the night when I was, I just felt like insight after insight flood over me and just this massive connection with my environment and the experience that I was having and just the, the, the nowness and the thereness and the rawness of the experience and that, that this actual doing and being was what it was all about. It wasn't about the rewards or the ego or the records or anything. All those things just led up to being here now and doing it. And um, those are just incredible feelings. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's just wonderful that these things unlock that. I, I think I'm certainly not unique there. I think most people probably, especially, you know, most of all state runners get things like this and most you know, I'd imagine that a lot of ultra runners get things like this from shorter distances, and I'm just maybe a harder nut to crack. And that's why it makes more of an impression on me when that nut does crack. I've, you know, as somebody who's never gone past, I guess, 32-ish hours before, I've I've experienced that sort of thing only rarely. And, and for me, it's been in these repetitive type things, 24s on a, on a short course or at bigs or something like that, where it's the, the kind of the lack of external stimulation or just the, the sameness of it that has allowed me to kind of get into that mindfulness or, or just being uh, extraordinarily present, I guess, which is, is not something I'm, I'm used to, to having. So that's, that's interesting that you were able to find that even in, you know, such a, a, a wide variety environment like you were in. Bev, d- does this race, you know, in particular or the, this type of effort, what is it mentally or emotionally that that kind of attracts you to it as opposed to to something more standard or some of the other stuff that you've done in the past? I think mentally it just allows you to kind of get in touch with everything that you are and they, you know, it gives you an opportunity to um, listen to yourself, to listen to your body and to just sort of feel what everything is doing and how you're connected to everything around you. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't done very many of these things and I've never done any, uh, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours or anything like that. So I think uh, for me, Vol State and, and HOTS have been pretty eye-opening with what it can do 
to you and for you when you just start letting go. You don't have to think about work. You don't have to think about anything but getting your feet moving in front of you and just the, the freedom of everything that that allows. So it's, it's something that draws me back. And it's, I think there is a little bit of an addiction. I know, you know, when I had knee surgery and was trying to come back from that, it was, my knee was constantly in pain and I would go out and run laps around the track because it was the only surface soft enough that I could. And, you know, when I had that first, first run where I had one lap and everything felt good. It's like, Oh my God, I need to come back tomorrow and maybe I'll get two laps. And it's just the, it, to me, you know, ball state and hots are sort of that same kind of addiction. Almost you're I'm, I'm looking for those moments of just complete clarity and, uh, being there in the moment as you go. And I think, you know, one of the big, big things for me was again that Honewald stretch that was really so horrible was actually probably the best thing for me mentally um, because it just it was it was so beyond what I wanted to be doing at that time that it allowed me to just sort of open up and and be there where I was and that's you know it was just sort of a different kind of experience yeah yeah. So I'm looking for more. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's, uh, I think that that's gotta be what is bringing folks like yourselves back to this sort of thing year after year. I mean, that's gotta be such a big part of, it. I mean, obviously the community and, and everything, and, and it seems like the, the community of the, of the towns and the road angels has really kind of flourished over the last few years as the, the race has become a little bit more well-known and, and more ingrained in, in the area. And I think that's, that's part of it, but I have to imagine that for the folks who've been doing this for, you know, three, five, 10 years that, that, you know, what you guys are, are talking about is, is a, one of the big draws of, of an experience like that. Anyway, we've taken up a ton of your guys' time. This has been really great. Phil, anything else before we, we let these guys go and, and get back to their recovery well, and beer drinking? I, I think the one thing is that uh, Volstead and Hots now, they've gone to a lottery for the entry. So the popularity is, uh, is ramping up on these things. So uh, it's kind of interesting how more and more people want to experience these uh, kind of long multi-day road adventures. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they are they are pretty special. So excited to uh, to see what happens next year, maybe maybe sub three days, possibly. It's It's been something that, you know, Greg and uh, Joe Fijas and I have talked, Greg and Joe talked about for quite a while and I've talked about yeah. it with them. And, um, you know, if Greg had, Greg was originally entered crude and I was originally entered crude and you know Greg flat out told me I want to go for that 72 hours and I was going to race him for it because I think you know if if all the stars align it should be possible but um after my experience this year um you know it takes the right person with the right background but also the right conditions and um I'm not optimistic it's going to happen anytime soon if at all you know may, maybe yeah. maybe somebody will come there totally mm -hmm. focused on it and trained for it and we'll get perfect weather but it seems like an unlikely combination i mean that that's yeah. that's awfully fast Th uh 314 yeah. miles in 72 i mean the, the list of people who have run 314 miles in 72 hours in any under any conditions uh, you know controlled conditions on your track or whatever is not a long list 
Well, it's not that huge a performance for 72. I mean, it's it's maybe not a huge list, but there's there's a lot of people who have done it. But I mean, yeah, this is very different because it's not it's not a track. It's not flat. It's right. there's all these weather conditions. And yeah. 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 Crazy. Crazy. Bev, Bob, thank you guys so much. This has been really, I think, this has been enlightening for me to use a word that we've kind of overused in the past 45 minutes, but also uh, a lot of fun. And it's, it's Bob, it's great to see you again, Bev. It's it's great to, to hear your story. And, and um, you know, best of luck in, in the rest of 2021 and, and moving forward. Thank you. Hopefully thank you. see you guys fun. in Tennessee next year. You won't see me there, but uh, Phil at least will, will be there cheering you guys. You on. say that now. You you'll you'll go once, and we won't be say able that, to stop you. Every say that year, for an awfully be, long time. You'll have a Vol State tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Oh gosh. Uh, Bob Hearn, Bev Abs, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody out there, thank you for joining us in the Pain Cave. And until next time, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up. The years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. But long ago, as a child, I look about the night sky in wild wonderment. And ride the bus, feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through there. I was still young. I was still.